Welcome to Series 3, Folklorica Nordica. We will journey into subterranean and spiritual realms through the folklore of the Nordic world. We will encounter the shamans, the subterranean beings, the wise folk and healers, and trolls and giants of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and Finland. In these northern lands, we will encounter a fascinating body of tales retold to evoke not only the original magic of the stories, but also the beautiful and mysterious regions they come from. Introduction Dark northern forests of ambiguous shadow and sinister presence. Ancient churchyards with secrets beneath searching feet. Inhuman beings of terrifying power made even more powerful during the spiritually potent winter season. These are all elements of the Swedish tradition of Oshgang or the Year Walk, in which an individual completes a kind of divination journey through night-shrouded woodland. Through forest, field, and churchyard, the year walker journeys, hoping to gain insight into the future, to know their own fate, as well as the fate of their village, to have some knowledge of those issues of life and death, war, crop-destroying weather or fire, disease, significant deaths. The year walker had to be a strong, audacious, and perhaps even desperate individual because the Oshgong is a trying and difficult ritual to undertake, for some very challenging rules had to be followed. Before first light on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, the year walker must go into the Stygian winter dark of the forest without saying a word, looking back, looking into a fire or having any food or drink. Across three to seven church parishes, across three crossroads or churchyards, they must journey during the most spiritually dangerous but also potent time of year when supernatural power swarmed, compelled by immense power. This nocturnal vision quest must be completed when the veil between this world and the other world become thin enough to allow the dead passage into our realm. Indeed, the audacity of a mere mortal to attempt to travel in these alternative realms yielded either great rewards or great suffering. To prepare one's spiritual senses for this journey, the best method was for the year walker to enter a secluded and dark room for the day, depriving the senses entirely of food or fire or social contact. All of this to heighten a different kind of sight, a seeing that can penetrate the veil between present and future, the veil between spiritual realms and the known world. Then, at midnight, the journey would begin, and for its entire duration, the year walker was forbidden to utter a single word. No cries of fear, no bouts of laughter, no weeping, no speaking. Yes, the year walker must be strong and self-controlled, for even if they are suddenly surprised by a bulky shifting in the forest shadow or here in a nearby thicket the unnatural grunt of an unnatural being, they must exercise razor-sharp self-control and not cry out. 
Otherwise, the ritual is compromised, and the Earwalker can suffer extreme mental and physical injury. All of this to perform a ritual that, as Tommy Cusella puts it, perhaps contains answers regarding the unbearable uncertainty of being. While there's no direct documentary evidence of Oshgang being an ancient practice, Kusela's article does put forward a potential link to the earlier ritual of sitting out, in which an individual would sit outside at night to establish contact with the other world. One medieval law condemns the spay journey and sitting out awakening trolls, quote end quote. The Old Norse word spafor is a compound word with spa meaning soothsaying or foretelling, and for meaning journey or travel, but also walk in the sense of begging. The connection with trolls then clearly indicates that the end goal of sitting out is to invoke supernatural powers and thereby gain knowledge and insight. And besides seeing the future, the Yearwalker might hope to gain magical knowledge and power, in some instances in the form of runes or rune sticks. The runic alphabet was the first system of writing used by Norse and Germanic peoples, and most importantly, the word rune itself only means a letter or writing in a secondary sense. The primary meaning is mystery or secret. This leads to why runes are a significant source of magical power, for in the minds of ancient Norse and Germanic peoples, and even more modern pre-industrial folk, a rune was much, much more than a letter. While they can be considered ideographic symbols of larger principles and cosmic powers, runes were also believed to have inherent power, for to write a rune was to conjure and harness the force for which the rune stood. According to Scandinavian scholar Katharina Rodver, the pronouncement of words was recognized to have a tremendous influence over the concerns of life. Words create reality not the other way around. As inherently powerful symbols that served as a basis of communication between human and non-human beings, runes provided a means of contact with the ethereal powers that govern, govern the known world. Runes, in other words, were also sources of deep and powerful magic. In an ancient Norse poem called The Song of Rig, there is a description of a god offering Rig a, quote, bundle of staves with signs and colored red. Referring to the practice of carving runes into sticks and then tracing the letters in red paint. In the poem, it states that these are the runes, the magic Allfather or Odin learned when he hung from Yggdrasil. Now this refers to Odin, the chief god of the Norse pantheon, and his essentially shamanic quest for knowledge, in which he hung from the world tree Yggdrasil for nine nights, his side pierced by a spear, in order to learn the wisdom of the dead. In the Song of Rig, a god asks most poignantly, and poignantly as he imparts the gift of the runes, Do you know the words against pain of the mind, pain of the heart, and pain of the body? And it is such poignant questions that must compel the Yearwalker to travel through dark northern forests of ambiguous shadow and sinister presence, through ancient churchyards with secrets beneath searching feet 
and to risk encountering inhuman beings of terrifying power. In this episode, we will journey with an audacious young woman who seeks to follow in the footsteps of her dying grandfather, a wise man and healer who has completed the year walk six times and must send his granddaughter in his stead to complete the seventh walk, which promises wisdom and power and magic beyond all human understanding, which promises some lightening of the unbearable burden of uncertainty of being, which promises spiritual salves to ease pain of mind, heart, and body. Part 1. Darkness in Sight The vision of her mind's eye had never been sharper. After untold hours in this dark room, without even a sliver of the sharp, thin winter light, she could see variations in the blackness so acutely that it seemed she were seeing the contours of mountain and hills in some shrouded, otherworldly landscape. And now that the waves of anxiety and claustrophobia had passed, she found her soul conjured images almost independently from her own will. Something deep inside her reconstructed images so compelling, she felt she could reach within her own mind space and touch them. Memories came to vivid life. First, she was walking a sucking mud lane between two hail-beaten fields, stalk stumps reaching painfully from the earth like emaciated corpse fingers. At the end of the path, that verdant forest realm, preternaturally green, and a stark contrast to the limp, sickly flesh color of destroyed crops and cruel, unseasonable cold. And beside her granddad, hunched and ill, but still warm with a vibrant energy. And when she When he took her hand and smiled, despite the grumbling of his starved gut, she felt waves of his healing energy pass through her. Somehow, he carried the green and sunshine in his soul. Somehow he lived, though death surrounded him. Then, she remembered what had brought her to this dark closet, hungry and thirsty and utterly disoriented why she had to do the seventh Ashgang. On that walk, she remembered, drooping its head over the fence, its dark bovine eyes plaintive and despairing. There was a lone cow, the last of his herd, which cried and moaned. Their neighbors had in fact asked her grandfather to heal the poor beast. Thin like gruel and worn like the paper-thin skin of a dying old woman, And so hollow soul-sad was the cow that it seemed to embody the hail-beaten, disease-eaten feeling of their whole community. Grandfather walked up to the poor beast, wrapped his arms around its neck, and whispered the formula into its ear. She had seen him do this before, but this time it felt as if he were saying it for every suffering soul he knew. A raspy conviction was in his tone. 
She stroked the cow's side while Grandfather whispered the story formula into its ear. Jesus, he said, was walking along the road when he saw a cow by a fence crying. What are you crying about, he asked. They've taken my power and my spirit, my flesh and my blood, cried the cow. And Jesus said to him, You shall get it back, your power and your spirit, your flesh and your blood. Your power shall be a bear's power, your spirit shall be a lion's spirit. Your skin shall become as smooth as ice, and your milk shall become like honey cake. The cow had stopped crying and moaning. And when Grandfather opened the gate and called to it, the cow followed him into the edge of the forest to a grassy clearing, miraculously green under a beam of sunshine. The cow ate and ate and ate and gave a happy moan as they watched on. The grazing beast seemed oblivious to the forest's stentorous breath. The ground and the dark conifer seemed to swell beneath her feet, and the girl felt Hackle's raising presence all about her. She always felt this way as the day shortened, and the long night pressed the length of its black, sleek body against one's senses. She turned to see the deeply grooved face of her hunched and smiling grandfather turned towards her, his lips pursed in thought. Child, he said, there's no point in denying that I will likely not be present in mortal body once night becomes king and master of our world. And this year, the seventh Ashgang, well, perhaps the mystery shown to me could help me heal the harvest rot and the hunger anger of our poor village. Ah, well, you know very well it is up to you to do the seventh walk in my stead. I don't know if such substitution is even possible. Nonetheless, you will try. We must try. Our souls and our bodies are on a steady decline. We are hail-battered in mind, and our stomachs grumble with all the threat of eating themselves from the inside out. I see your fear, and that's actually comforting. Only fools will look into this forest and not see the writhing, loamy potency, the swelling of its boreal soul, the glimpses of that other world. But remember that you are a descendant of the Volvor of old. You've got pieces of souls from worlds traversing wise women. It is you or no one. In that moment, she felt some pride, but mostly trepidation. Anxious, racing memories now filled her mind. Villagers with angry, blaming eyes spitting in the direction of her ailing, overworked grandfather. Suddenly, the young woman was startled from this memory from her reverie by a single knock on the door of her void black room. It was time. Part 2, The Forest The First Trial The great droning whisper of the winter boreal forest seemed to pass through her 
as she stepped over the boundary between gentle pastoral lands and the dark woodland. The silence that immediately enveloped her was thick and luscious, fecund and fertile. The silence was torrential, absolute and obdurate, refusing the infringement of sound on its territory. The immensity of the soundlessness was leviathan-like, and an immense other world seemed ingrained in the very fabric of the stillness. Her own senses expanded in turn, and the fine-tuned gut sight was a torment of both unbearable uncertainty and precipice knife-edge anticipation. As she walked further into the wild depths, plotting delicate footprints in the shushing snow, which lullabied the very frame of the world, the bare bones of rock and tree trunk coddled and oppressed, she felt branded in her senses the stark yet elegant interplay between black and white. And surrounding her were these stern and constant conifers wearing the white snow with silent dignity and the white-barked birches with spindly branches sprightly capturing the moon-glittered snow. And it was an oppressive peace, a burdensome stillness, full to bursting. From the thick blackness obscuring the path in front of her, there came a guttural exhalation and sneering growl, which reverberated beneath her feet, as if she were standing on the back of a giant, the rocks mere warts and the trees its coarse hairs. She knew she could not stop. She must pass over seven parishes before daybreak. And as she stepped forward into that strange, heaving shadow across the path, the growl resounded with a lonesome baritone quality. And she thought she saw two massive boulders moving with a sickening, uncanny fluidity floating a great height above the forest floor. Disoriented and confused, she pursed her lips together, knowing that whatever she saw, she must bite off her own tongue before she cried out. She remembered her grandfather's words. You have the pieces of, of souls of worlds traversing wise women. She remembered these words and steeled herself. Moving forwards, she strained her eyes in the blackness, which stung her eyes with its viscosity, its thickness, and towering over her were tree trunks, perhaps, massive and vertical like pines, but covered in bulbous growths. She nearly gasped when she saw the bark tense and ripple, like muscles, and again, the guttural exhalation and the lonesome baritone growl. Then, with deer-quick movement, something like a boulder enveloped in ancient tree roots rushed towards her, and when it split apart into five rocky pillars, she saw and knew. This was a hand. Now her mind flared, and she felt reason smothered. Yet something beyond mind and reason compelled her to clench her jaw, and the terror that should have been released through a scream stayed in her belly, tearing and ripping at her gut. She was enveloped, grasped, and she nearly fainted with hyperventilation for the sensation was something like crawling through a rocky passage far beneath the earth and feeling it slowly collapse upon you. Then, 
She was drawn upward, her sight was drawn upward, and the first thing she could discern in the gouged granite, the bulbous rocky protrusions and grasping tree roots were eyes, unblinking and sneering. This she could feel rather than see, for on the surface there only seemed to be a stony and stolid stupidity. A yata. This came upon her with nonverbal force, with the gut realization of ancestral memory. A forest yata. Dangerous in their loneliness, living in solitary huts in black isolation. The giant held her out as if to study her, and she realized with a sinking fear that the impression of floating boulders she had earlier were its heads, five in total with only the middle one blinking and rippling with life and expression. And when it opened its craggy mouth, a waft of rotten animal flesh and churning bile misted over her. She nearly gagged, realizing her hair was wet with its moist breath. Nonetheless, with her pieces of vulvar soul, she willed herself to neither gasp or scream or cry aloud. Within her own mind, she cried out for her grandfather's spirit to guide her. Something, like the forest silence she sensed earlier, settled over her being, and she realized that the gratings and wet gurglings coming from that cave mouth was speech. And as the rocky grip tightened painfully around her waist, she heard a slow, nails-on-wood threat. Captivity. Captivity in his lonely, rotting forest hut. Captive his ma- base, mean gruntings. Captive to his night-dark, obscure existence. With a childish grin, he said he would make a deal. Scream, cry, and confess me as master human woman and I will release you. Otherwise, and his cave mouth came closer, otherwise you will weep and soak your finger bones every night because your flesh will be stripped by all the weaving and spinning I will make you do. I will make you scratch my head every night, human woman, every night will your nails scrape and bleed. He paused for a moment, You have nice wide hips and a fiery spirit, he laughed. So I might keep you for other things as well. It is impossible to describe the great ocean swell of terror and anger that filled her gut and pushed up through her throat in convulsive and acidic waves. She felt a sense of panic at the sheer physicality of her emotion that to hold it in might rupture her guts. Yes, she did. A begging prayer in her mind as she looked up to the black sky and its millions of glittering pinpricks of light. A calm enveloped her, and she looked Yata straight in the eyes. She breathed in deeply and reached out to touch his cheek. Startled, the giant dropped her to the ground and wept. Through his sobbing, the Yata bellowed his lonely anguish, his mountain voice quavering with a watery pain. 
do you know, human woman, what it's like to crawl through interminable ages with only the echo of your own voice bouncing off in different hills? Only that, for companionship, do you know? These heads are a mockery of my loneliness. The girl, terrified but full of compassion, crawled towards the Yata, which now lay on his side in the fetal position and stroked one of his massive fingers. His very being so one with the rocks and trees and forests, she realized that his oneness with the forest was an expression of his very being, vulnerable and lonely, sinky connection with something, anything. He still cast angry, rocky words towards her. His utterance was pure hurt and despair and appetite. His utterances brought to her mind's eye the angry neighbors who used to be friends, who had danced at weddings together and had helped deliver babies. With his every anguished word, she saw how those her grandfather had helped and healed turned angry eyes and spittle towards him. She knew she must remain silent, for a single syllable from her lips would bind her to his world of lonely and powerless hatred. And when a golden light poured from her, when a mysterious beam of sunlight slowly enveloped the weeping Yata, she thought she heard a sigh of relief before he closed his eyes and succumbed to his final petrification. She felt no victory, felt no sense of pride that this massive rock, once a terrifying, lonely being, was a kind of trophy. Instead, she silently walked away from her first trial and mourned. The second trial. The girl felt like a twig frozen in ice. Walking this hillside ridge, the bald cold encased the shroud of night-darkened conifers which cascaded coldly down the hillside, and the distant hills and fields hibernated darkly and dreamt dark dreams. To her right, through a cluster of winter-denuded birches, she saw the third parish church, and breathed in to steady herself. Grating voices singing psalms skipped and bounced from the grove with a perverse childlike air, yet muffled and tunnel-like, their spirits bound to the grave from which they came. And as she continued to the tree line, she caught a glimpse of dark bird-like shapes zooming with a constant fidgeting energy, yet strangely hypnotic in their motion the Natramnar, the spirits of the restless deceased. Their energy shrieked at her. There was something in the forest. And certainly, the minute she stepped over that arboreal threshold, there was a howling squeal, followed by snuffling grunts. 
The sheer spiritual bulk of the beast surged in the forest, causing the very atmosphere to ripple like agitated muscles. Then heavy breathed squeals and a galloping thudding that shook the very earth. The girl knew wild boars, had seen them, knew that their bulk belied their shocking speed and pure muscular energy. But the earth shook with thuds that gave her a strange vertigo, an overwhelming nausea. The girl barely kept her balance and closed her eyes, the shriek squeals considerably closer. Remembering her grandfather's instructions was like the strain of passing a baby through the birthing canal, but she did nonetheless. Stand tall with her hands to her side. Despite the terrible image of being gored by the beast and its snuffling in her knife-sharp pained guts, keep legs firmly together. Be a pillar, he said. Do not cry aloud. Swallow your fear down into your gut where it will disintegrate and digest. With its razor-sharp back bristles, it will seek to cleave you in two with its unreasoning animal violence. Stand tall. She did. And in her gut was the stabbing anxiety she had swallowed with such force she thought her throat and diaphragm might rupture. Imagine a train shrieking down a track towards you. Such was the force of the Glossin. The girl knew she must open her eyes, for the Glossin would be carrying a boon in its mouth, and she must grasp it. A wild pig of strange dimensions, massive and up to her waist in height, but as dense as the very earth itself. As it streaked by and grunted thunderously, she tensed at the sight of hair bristles, looked as tough as metal. The ones traversing the ridge of the beast's back were razor-like. To not cry out when this grumbling, shrieking bundle of pig energy was scream-running so close that you tensed painfully with the anticipation of being sliced by its knife-edged hairs? Well, she feared that her heart might explode from the unreleased energy of her terror. Bracing herself, she knew what she must do. When the Glossin circled her and made to run in the opposite direction, she reached out and grabbed the back bristles, feeling the sharp pain at first but then ignoring it. She leapt and straddled the beast, which screamed in outrage and ran with preternatural speed, dodging the moonlit pines as she gripped and willed herself to not cry aloud. This boreal realm was shrouded in winter white, and an unnatural darkness deepened in silence so profound that again she felt a bone-deep vertigo, as if a precipice were lodged into her forehead and her mind forced to gaze into a black nothing. The Glossin's galloping hooves created a drumbeat on the earth, and black shadows chanted with open-mouthed hunger. It was a nightmare ride on a beast who had torn through the veil and now carried her through the other world, inimical to her warm flesh and beating heart. Still, she did not cry aloud. She kept her eyes on the rune sticks, gripped in its mouth. A sense of panic as she found her mind emptying of all that she knew. Zooming, blurred trees became blackness complete, like the realm of the dead. Then, nothing. They had stopped, 
and she felt the beast's heaving breath lift her up and down. Looking around, she saw they were in the middle of a moonlit clearing, cradled, nestled in a cleft in the hills. Peaceful and somehow nurturing was this nook in the wilderness. She leapt off the Glossin's back and reached into her pocket for the seven-year-old nuts. Scattering them on the ground before the beast, she waited. It looked at her for a moment, and then dropped the rune sticks at her feet. While it gobbled the nuts, she picked up the staves and studied them. Tracing her fingers over them, she felt the mountain energy of the Thurisat's rune, the giant, and all the danger and suffering of this world that it evoked. She could feel an unbearable weight on her heart and stomach as she touched it and drew her fingers away. Then she touched the rune Conan, the ulcer, and all the anxious, devouring movement it evoked. The mortality and pain of all living beings, she could feel a searing disintegration of being and pulled her finger away quickly. Then she drew her fingers along the Hagalaz rune, meaning hail, and felt the destruction and chaos, felt her life draining, her being becoming a dry husk like a crop destroyed and stripped of vitality. She hesitated before touching the Laguz rune, and when she did, she could no longer feel her body. A sense of formlessness in the chaos of ice and fire that was at the beginning of the world. Yet, therein lay potentiality beginnings. The chaos itself was the very essence of worlds to be. In her hands, in these runes, she held lack and fear, inscribed and spoken it, she somehow knew that denying a thing did not give one power over it. These were things to be faced. Sensing a shifting and movement behind her, she turned, gripping the rune staves. First she saw a funeral procession, but phantasmal and wavering. She could only barely make out the deceased, a number of familiar faces from her village, many of them tender souls who had been kind to her through the years. She also saw people from her village sitting on heaps of stones holding tiny, insubstantial sheaves of grain, sighing and grieving. Her heart dropped to think her people would see even more famine and illness. And a sob began to form in her throat. Her grandfather's warning leapt into her mind. Never speak, never cry, never. Oshkan gone wrong brings dire consequences. You know them. The man emerging from the forest with no eyes. The other whose head was bent and distorted. And the one who just simply never returned. Whose voice some say they hear, close and yet tunnel-like. Do not utter a sound. Ashgang gone wrong brings dire consequences. The girl swallowed, breathed in deeply. Before her was the fifth parish church. The third trial 
Perhaps it was the density, the pure accumulative concentration of winter dark, but the girl felt that even the winter constellations were somehow off, unfamiliar, at least in those portions of sky not obscured by the dense and disorienting canopy. This was true ancient forest, where gods of old roamed, rewarded, and punished. And as much as she tried to push down the disturbing sense of otherness, she felt that the silence here deepened with mind-black profundity. Perhaps it was best to not ignore the inconvertible truth. The Glossin had brought her to another place altogether, somewhere parallel to her known world, but operating according to different rules and forces. And as she approached the fifth parish church, she noticed that the dark wooden stone was colonized by some very peculiar fungi, grotesque shining with indulgent slickness. Even the gravestones were completely covered in variations of slick-looking okra tan and black ripples. The sensation of being saturated in soundlessness was the closest parallel to death that the girl had ever experienced. And like her first entrance into the forest, the silence was thick and luscious, fecund and fertile. The silence was torrential, absolute and obdurate, refusing the infringement of sound on its territory. The immensity of the soundlessness was leviathan-like, and an immense other world seemed ingrained in the very fabric of the stillness. Her own senses expanded in turn, and the fine-tuned gut sight was a torment of both unbearable uncertainty and precipice-knife-edged anticipation. As she did with the previous churches, she walked counterclockwise seven times around the building, watching and strengthening her will, rehearsing her grandfather's instructions in her mind. She noticed with some warmth and comfort that his presence was much stronger in this place, his wisdom and unassuming power. And as she smiled at this memory, she noticed now a tree trunk whose width was impossible to take in at one glance. The deep grooves of its bark filled with moss, so lush and unusually tall for this groveling, gripping plant, that one had the sense that it was a forest in its own right, containing colonies of beings. At the tree's giant base, larger even than the foundation of the church, there was a blue-litten pool of water, shining with a celestial sea glow. And the silence deepened, a nothingness that poured into her ears and mouth and nose as she breathed. Even the sound of her own breath seemed to be subsumed into the stillness. It was against the background of this soundless void that he emerged. First, a rhythmic slow thudding, an immense thud that sent mind-shattering visions of mountain and sky. Then, what she at first could only register as an enormous presence like a churning charcoal storm, but silent. The thud continued from just beyond the tree line, and over the tops of the trees she could see the outline of a broad-figured shoulder. The final reveal was this, a black steed whose legs were four times her height, and with a silent fire burning from its neck, and in its mouth were several large rune sticks, 
all with the orange-yellow cast of that fey fire. The girl dropped to her knees and willed her gasp down into her soul, willed it down so deep she feared she may never speak again. For the writer filled the soundlessness with something she had sensed while reading the Laguz rune, a world's shaping potentiality, the raw power at the beginning of all things. One sense that to look directly into his face would reduce the mind to scattered ashes. Yet somehow, she sensed that this was indeed her trial, to look full into his face to risk the complete loss of self and mind and presence by looking at one who carried the deep magic of the rune in his bones and blood and sinews. She could only will herself to raise her eyes slowly, for an elemental power subdued her with awe. As she did, all the parts of his majestic being had been pieced together. First legs that had been shaped by steep mountain paths, a shaman's wanderings, and infant world magic. And then, a streamlet of earth-red blood gently trickling from his side. A strong, broad neck and a wide-brimmed hat that shadowed half of his face. And then it happened like this. He lifted his face to reveal one bright and blue-litten eye and one cavity where his other eye had been gouged. The cavity was dark chaos and soundless void. The bright blue eye was sight and wisdom. And they both made her quake and trouble for she felt as an actual force her inmost thoughts being brought to the surface of her skin, and she bit her lip at a sense of scraping and burning all over her body. Runes they were, runes being branded into her skin, the most buried parts of herself in plain letters on her very skin. Despite the pain and shame and vulnerability, despite her terrible fear, she continued to stare full into his face. He read her, studied her, and then smiled slightly. And when he spoke, it was surprisingly gentle. Do you know the words against pain of the mind, pain of the heart, and pain of the body? She shook her head. Well then, little one, he said. The first of my esoteric charms is called help because it can comfort grief and lessen pain and cure sickness. The second, however, you will learn at the end of your journey, and anyone who hopes to become a healer must know it. And with that, the horse's mouth opened and swirls of flame and sunlight and infinite summer ocean sparkle poured out, and the rune sticks dropped to her feet. She nearly wept as she read them, the power of their blessing flowing from her very thoughts into the air around her. First, the rune Fehu, cattle and wealth. Second was Gibo, or gift and generosity. The fourth was Yera, or year, harvest and reward. And when she read the next rune, Ansus, an Aesir god, prosperity and vitality, she looked into the writer's face and mouthed, thank you. His smile blessed her, 
strengthened her, and he nodded at the sticks. She realized there was one more. The rune Ingwa's a god, fertilization, the beginning of something, the actualization of potential. The girl embraced the blessed runes and watched the rider disappear into the forest. The Last Trial Amidst the pockmarked ancient stones, Around and through the dark hues and lithesome birches, surrounding the forsaken wooden church, darkened by its own abandonment, the girl sensed a persistent, hollow rush of wind as if she and the entire area were sheltered in a cave from some windy cataract. And amidst a murmuring in the air like a persecuted bird's nervous escape were also strange outbursts of song which died within seconds of its starting. From the graves they came, and with every strange quarrel surge, the girl felt what little warmth she had drawn from her. This place was not like the others. Here, the wind-eaten gravestones and the diseased tumorous trees and the keen-mouthed hankering of the emaciated church, they all seemed to reach invisible tubes and roots into one's being to feed. But in a strange inversion of self-nourishment, Instead, this invisible eating seemed to starve those who fed. These sensations whittled away at the mind, eroded thought and memory, and the girl felt weak as she circled the church seven times counterclockwise. This was the last church, and one she had never seen but only knew through insinuation and rumor. A nocturnal sentinel dwelled here, a guardian of sorts. Collapsing onto the ground in front of the church, she felt a blankness in her heart and mind, a shrill anxiety in her gut, for here was the final stage. And even her grandfather looked blankly at her when she asked what she might expect. The truth, child, he had said, is that to even speak of it is a taboo of epic proportions. It's like sucking on a curse and savoring its poison foolish. It was unspirit and untruth, but more real than real. Such a strange thought to pass through her mind. A keen-mouthed hankering, a panting for air in a vacuum void, these things she felt as she recalled the old whispered stories. In the olden days when this church was built, a goat was buried in the foundations, not alive as was often the custom, but as a carcass and carrying the heart of a criminal. The heart of an outcast was placed within the animal, and both were placed in the foundations. The outcome was an altogether different kind of being, one that protected and guarded, but also fed and drained. Something utterly attached to the place, a paradox of a being who is powerful in its forsaken nature, who though hungered was eternally full of heaven and earth. And the girl knew the power of paradox, so she waited. She knew somehow that the second charm, that esoteric knowledge which was her end goal, she knew it would be found in this strange place. It was while she pondered these things as she heard it, 
a rhythmic thudding that seemed to come from everywhere, from the furthest, darkest recesses of the celestial sphere, from every cardinal direction, from every hollow crevice of the underworld, and from every tiny minuscule point in the empty air surrounding her. It was oppressive and yet heart-expansive. It was terrifying and yet a cooling solace. It was utterly alive and yet undead. Then, a deep, bleeding breath on her neck. She clenched her teeth, turned. A few feet off the earth, directly in front of her, a pair of goat's legs levitated, emaciated but emanating an eye-warming light. The legs were composed of dirges and sharp sinewy sounds, psalms and world-shaping hymns. Mesmerized, she moved her gaze upward and nearly cried aloud when she felt her vision fracture. All she could take in were giant horns that touched the very north star and shone with pinpricks of distant stars. And where perhaps the torso should be, there was a giant beating heart. Its pumping thud seemed to come from everywhere, from the furthest, darkest recesses of the celestial sphere, from every cardinal direction, from every hollow crevice of the underworld, and from every tiny, minuscule point in the empty air surrounding her. It was oppressive and yet heart-expansive. It was terrifying and yet a cooling solace. It was utterly alive and yet undead. And she knew where that esoteric charm lay. Without a single thought, she approached the Kierkegrim, the church grim, and felt herself lift off the earth, drawing so close to the heart, she could see every fiber of muscle. She closed her eyes and reached out her hand and placed her fingertips on the raw, pulsating chambers. First, silence. Silence that was immediately was thick and luscious, fecund and fertile. Silence that was torrential, op- absolute and obdurate, refusing the infringement of sound on its territory. The immensity of the soundlessness was leviathan-like, and an immense other world seemed ingrained in the very fabric of this stillness. It was the nothing deep over which the Spirit of God brooded and intended. Ganungagap, a great chasm of emptiness, or so it seemed. The girl had lost all sense of her own body except for her fingers and the pulsating heart. She was within a vision, her being was elsewhere, and her fingers anchored her. In the great Genesis, in the void of old, there was oozing ichor and fomenting yeast and algae and rot and mud and much chaotic spawning. And where Ganunagap met frozen Niflheim, there were layers of ice and frost. And at the other end of the chasm, she saw emanations of lava-red heat that blistered sight and melted sense. And in the middle, where death ice and death heat met, was warmth and quickening life in the ice melt, life in the drops of water. Then, where her fingers met the heart, she felt weeping and laughter. She felt the miracle of a giant that emerged from nothing. The miracle of a primordial cow birthed from melted ice. A cow whose river of milk could sustain the titanic being. She felt the quickening pulse of God 
as the miracle of moon and sun formed from his whispers, the miracle of self-sustained light and the celestial voids. And when she came to, when she fell to the ground and lay prostrate before the Kierkegrim, she knew she had received the final charm. Turning on her back, she saw that the Kierkegrim had disappeared, saw familiar constellations once again, and closed her eyes in weariness. And when she opened them, and rosy-fingered dawn brought mild fire to the icy sky, she released it all, all the terror and anger and grief and joy and victory of her trials and their boons and laughter and shouts and tears. This episode was inspired by the game Yearwalk, created by Samoga, a Swedish game development company. I hope I achieved the same eerie beauty and atmosphere that the game did. If you haven't played it, give it a try. The Yearwalk ritual is experienced in terms of sparse narrative, puzzles, and stark visual beauty. In terms of research, I relied heavily on the work of Tommy Kusella, an expert in Swedish lore whose fascinating and well-written article on the topic was indispensable. In fact, the creature encounters in this episode were drawn largely from his article. So the Glossin, the Old Man, and the Kierkegrim were particularly fascinating to me and certainly fired the imagination. In his article, Kusela also touches upon the fact that the Old Man is quite reminiscent of Odin, particularly his shamanistic pursuit of wisdom on Yggdrasil. And with this in mind, and to develop this link to Allfather, I drew inspiration from the Penguin Book of Norse Myths by Kevin Crossley Holland, which is beautifully written, and the translations are um, very poetic and very novel. I was also inspired by the Norse creation story in this book and decided to combine both Norse and Old Testament images of creation in the main character's experience with the Church Grimm largely because the Yearwalk is clearly a, ca- a classic example of syncretism, particularly the blending of Christian symbols with pre-Christian ritual. This source also included the Song of Rig, and its handling of magic runes provided imaginative fodder. To further develop the role of runes in this story, I also drew from Daniel McCoy's website, Norse Mythology for Smart People. Lastly, you'll probably have wondered what I meant by the term vulvur when describing the wise women in the main character's lineage. The term is a Norse one and refers to a female shaman and seer. Odin, in fact, was said to have visited one for insight and wisdom. I decided to use the term to develop the main character's identity. Once again, I would like to thank Coag Music for providing such professional and high-quality music for free. 
To keep abreast of research and episode progress, head over to the Mythos Facebook page and follow. And if you are a fan of folklore generally, do follow Folklore Thursday on Twitter. Until next time.